All right, you guys, let's give it up for the band, huh? I honestly just wanted to clap with you all one more time. This is, that's where that's going. Uh, guys, good to see you all. My name is Drake. I am the director of Salt Company. If you're new here, I am as well. So uh, good to have you guys here. I moved here a year and some change ago to start a salt company at Salt St. Paul. And now I'm moving over to be with you guys at the U. And I couldn't be more pumped to be here with this celebration that we do every Thursday night. Guys, we see this as like a, a family reunion, basically, that we want to gather together and celebrate what Jesus has done. But I realize I don't know a lot of you. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to meet all of you guys at one time. Um, I'm going to count to three. I don't want to hear all of your guys' names. And shout it so I can hear it b- behind the muffled mass. So let's go. One, two, three. Good to meet you all. Happy to have you here. Uh, Just to give you a little bit more detail about myself, I have been married for the last three and a half years, got that right, to a lovely lady named Paige. We got the picture. There she is. She's gorgeous, right? Right there. She's lovely. And so we've been married for three and a half years, going on four in January. You can do the math there. Um, But in 16 weeks, which is a very small number, I'm coming to realize. 16 weeks, we are adding a third to our family. Let's get that picture. Come on. Oh, look at that pose. Come on. That's great. Okay, so that is going to be added. So we've been doing some work on the nursery. Um, I've been building the crib. We can show that here. We've got the rocking chair, all that looking good. If you're, if you're curious what is uh, in the crib, that's my uh, fantasy football championship trophy no big deal. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if you need advice, let me know, but that's, that's enough of that. Uh, great to meet you all. I'm sure I'll uh, need some help remembering those names. Uh, but tonight, we are kicking off a new series uh, where we're calling it Conversations with Jesus. So I'll let you interpret what it's going to be about. Uh, pretty obvious there. But basically, as we look throughout the Gospels, we see time and time again Jesus having conversations with a variety of different people, people of high class and people who are in low class. And with all these people, he dramatically changes their perception of who God is and who they are as people. He flips it on its head every time he has a conversation. And my prayer is that it does the exact same thing for all of us in this room. And so we're kicking it off here tonight in John 3. Feel free to open to that if you have a Bible, if you have a phone, if you uh, don't have either of those. I'm pretty sure everyone has a phone. Uh, But if you don't have those, we'll have the words on the screen that you can follow along with here tonight. But guys, I'm excited for this first one because I think that John 3 pushes back against probably one of the biggest messages of our culture. One of the messages that we're hearing in all the media that we're seeing constantly And that message is that we need to be the best possible version of ourselves. Like we need to strive to be the greatest version of ourselves. And if you look online, you're going to constantly see this message coming into you. And if you look at like bestsellers, self-help books, easiest way to a New York Times bestseller, I'm pretty sure. Because those things are selling like crazy because everyone wants to make themselves better. Everyone wants that. And I I spent a little bit of time looking at some quotes, some self-help quotes. We all know those cheesy motivational quotes that we see on posters. So I've got a couple of them to share. 
Um, the three that I found were, for every minute you are angry, you lose 60 seconds of happiness. Did you know that? It's just good math. That's all that is. Um, this is one that hits all of us. This is one we get the feels, okay? So here we go. The journey is as important as the destination. It's deep, right? Very deep. Last one. And this one I think is a little bit more real. This is that there is nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. So to the person next to you, true nobility is being superior to your former self. So you're not necessarily trying to be great compared to someone else, but you just want to be better than you were yesterday. And tomorrow you're hoping that you're better than you are tonight. That is the message that our culture has, that we are constantly striving to be better than where we are right now. And guys, this is no joke. I was literally scrolling through Facebook today after I had this message all wrapped up. And I got this ad for a nice canvas print. Might have been listening. We don't need to go into that. But so Mamba mentality, the late, great Kobe Bryant, this was his motto. This is what he lived by, and this is what so many people repeat. But what does Mamba mentality mean? It's a constant quest to be the best version of oneself. It's literally what drives so much of us. That's the current that we are swimming in, whether we know it or not. It's to strive to make ourselves great, to maximize our greatness. And so many of you are coming into college right now. So many of you are entering in with so many new people, or maybe this is your first time to Salt Company, and you're like, man, I want to be great in the eyes of everyone else here. How do I let other people view me as great? How do I better myself in these four years of college? We want to be better than where we are right now, and we feel that weight to measure up to that. We feel that need and desire within us that we need to be better or else we failed. And what I want our big idea to be tonight, what I want all of us to walk away remembering is that in Christianity, it's not about being a better self. It's about being a new self. It's not about being a better self, but a new self. So we are going to go to John 3 now where we're going to meet a man named Nicodemus. I'm pretty sure all of his boys called him Deem. I don't know. The commentators didn't say that, but I'm pretty sure that's what they would have called him. So Nicodemus is the first man we're running into. Let's read verse 1. We'll get the introduction to who this man is. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Spelled that wrong there. That's unfortunate. Um, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Okay, so stop there. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. That fills in a ton of information for us, whether we know it or not. So basically, he's a Pharisee. So he is of the moral elite in Jerusalem. Like, he is the highest tier when it comes to a moral reputation. That's where he stands. He also knows the word of God like the back of his hand. You say a verse, he could recite it. Actually, they didn't have verses broken down then. But if you say something, he could recite it to you. He knew the word of God so easily he could pop off verses from the scriptures like that. And he was also a ru ruler of the Jews. So he was a part of the Sanhedrin, another fancy name that basically meant he was a part of the crew that was making sure the word of God was upheld among the people. So this dude had a ton of power. This dude had that moral reputation. 
This is a dude that everyone would look up to with honor. Like you'd see him walk in the streets and you would just look at him because like, that is Nicodemus. Like everyone would be amazed by his presence. He was seen as a man of God among everyone. So that when he spoke, people would gather around him. That when you maybe went up to talk to him, you'd be a little bit nervous because you're talking to someone a little bit famous. Like that is the, the reputation that Nicodemus had in Jerusalem. Everyone knew who this man was. But then Nicodemus basically has this moment where he starts hearing of another guy in town. He starts hearing these stories that are actually exciting people about this man rather than himself or the Pharisees. People are being amazed by this man and no longer him. So he hears about this dude showing up to a wedding and out of nowhere creating about 900 bottles of wine for this wedding. He hears about this one dude that went to someone who was paralyzed and spoke to them and they got up and walked away. He heard about a man that walked into the temple of God and started flipping tables, saying that this is his father's house and it's not meant to be a market for you to use for your own gain. He's hearing these stories and the rumblings throughout Jerusalem, and he is determined to meet this man. And so he sets it in his path to meet Jesus at some point because he wants to be a better version of himself. Like, if we want to be a better version, what do we do? We surround ourselves with great people. That's networking 101. Carlson, you should know all about that. But he, he wants to meet Jesus in order to make himself better. And so he sets it in his schedule to come to Jesus at night. Why at night? There's a couple different ideas of why at night, but one of the main ones is that he wanted to go at a time where none of the other religious elite would see him talking to Jesus. Because Jesus didn't really rub shoulders too well with the Pharisees. And so he wanted to go when it could just be him and Jesus and no one else would see that conversation so that he wouldn't get any flack for that. And so he finally comes to Jesus. He's probably a little bit anxious to meet this man. He's anxious if other people are going to see him. And he's strolling into this house at night and he sits across the table from Jesus with all these questions just wrestling in his mind of what would you ask this person that you hear is healing the paralytic? It's turning water to wine. Like what questions would you ask him? And so he sits down and the first thing he says is in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which was the proper greeting in that time, basically saying, Master, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So he's basically saying, we as the Pharisees, okay, the men of God, the elite, like we know that you're a man of God. He's almost with this posture of like, it takes one to know one. Like, hey, I know a man of God when I see it, and we can tell that you are a man of God. But then what Jesus says next is going to radically shake everything about Nicodemus' life. And so zero in on verse 3. And anytime Jesus says, truly, truly, he wants us to lean in a little bit more to get our attention to hear what he's going to say. So he says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you've got this 
great man of God, or at least he's convinced himself that he's a great man of God for his entire life. Like he is of a royal family. He knows the word of God like the back of his hand. He has done all the right things. His moral record and his background is incredible. He is a man of God in the eyes of every single person in that town. And yet he is hearing from Jesus, Nicodemus, you can't see the things of God. You are spiritually dead in your heart. And so immediately Nicodemus gets a little defensive. He gets a little sarcastic. Sometimes we do this. We get sarcastic to try to defend ourselves. And so he asks this question. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And so he's basically like, Jesus, I don't know if you know how birth works, uh, but it's a painful process for the mom. I've heard about it. Uh, It's a painful process. And since I was a child, I've actually grown up a lot since then. Um, I don't think this is happening. Like, I don't think being reborn is a physical possibility. I don't think my mom's going to be okay with that. That can't happen. So he comes back with this, like, sarcastic response of, like, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. That's not happening. Why is he so confused? Why is he so rattled by this that he would defend sarcastically and try to guard his position? It's because in this moment, Jesus is challenging everything that he has built his identity on. Like, he is going straight at the heart of what he has built his identity on. And so he feels the need, like, I got to guard this. I can't have you calling me out for that. And so as he's doing this, he's basically hearing, man, your royal heritage, that means nothing. You doing everything perfect and you seeing yourself as far above and beyond some of these other people with some broken backgrounds, that means nothing. You can recite to me the whole Old Testament right now verbatim. That doesn't allow you one step closer to seeing the things of God. And so you can just imagine Nicodemus in this moment. Just so many emotions hitting him at one time. Like he's frustrated, he's defensive, he's angry, he's confused. And he's also a little bit curious to continue hearing what Jesus has to say. And maybe he's thinking back to all the times that maybe he recited scripture to a group of people. And he was so impressed with the ability that he had to recite those scriptures. But then he realized, man, this isn't affecting my heart like it's supposed to. Maybe he's thinking about all the times that he said those grand prayers in front of people for people to hear how eloquent his prayers were. But then when he went home isolated, he was praying to a wall. He's like, I don't feel any connection with God. And he's thinking back through his entire life, questioning all of those moments. And if we are honest, there's some of you in this room tonight who feel the exact same way. There's some of you in this room tonight who have convinced yourself that you've been following God for your entire life when you're not actually following him at all. All of your reasonings, that connected you to God or made you feel like you were walking with him, are you reciting things that you've done? Not what God has done in your life. So maybe someone asks you, are you a Christian? You're like, yeah, I grew up in the church. Maybe someone says, are you a Christian? You're like, yeah, my family. I was born into a Christian home. Are you a Christian? They're like, yeah, I, 
I read the scriptures every once in a while. I went through confirmation. I pray before my meals. Like, you just begin to recite different things that have made you feel like you're a Christian. And so with Nicodemus, he had built for himself a ladder of morality that he felt he could climb up to reach God on his own. And so for you, you have built up for yourself. Like, look at these actions that I've done. This is the ladder that proves that I am justified to know God. And what Jesus is doing is he's knocking that ladder out from underneath our feet to where we realize that we bring nothing to the table to see the kingdom of God. Or maybe there's some of you who have the opposite background. You're like, yeah, mine actually doesn't look anything like Nicodemus's. Mine has some moral brokenness. And there's a lot of flaws in my past. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain in my past that I am trying to deal with. And you look at people like Nicodemus. You look at people who look like they have it all together, and you're like, man, I could never be like that. And you begin to question, like, man, is there any way for me to do the right things to be right with God? And in this moment, you're seeing that once their ladder is whipped out from underneath them, you guys are all on a level ground. That everyone, when it comes to their own works, cannot see... the the spirit of God, cannot see the kingdom of God on their own. But then the question hits us. Okay, so I hear what you're saying. I hear that I can't, like, enter into the kingdom of God on my own. But why? Like, why isn't my past make me worthy to be in the kingdom of God? Why can't my works or me bettering myself allow me to see the kingdom of God? Let's look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So he's comparing two different things, born of the water and born of the Spirit. So water, there's a couple different ideas of what that could be. They're talking maybe natural birth or maybe talking a referral to Ezekiel uh, 36, which is where we're going to go now because I think it breaks down these two things super well. So Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Notice how many times it says, I will, in this passage. God speaking in this part. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone. So here it's talking about a heart of stone, a heart that is like a rock, like it's dead. There's no heartbeat to it. So I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that's alive, a heart that's actually pumping for the things of God. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's constantly saying, I will do this. God will do this. God will cause this to happen in your life. And so what we see is that it has to be God himself putting his spirit within us 
not us trying to scrap together to try to get it on our own. God himself has to put that spirit in our hearts. And when he does that, our, our hearts, our souls become alive to the kingdom of God. The spirit of God entering our heart radically changes everything about us to where we no longer love the things of this world. We begin to love the things of God. Where we don't love, man, the, the sin that we used to run to all the time, we begin to hate it a little bit more. And we begin to love following God's commands more and more. And so we see that it is completely God working. How do we get a new spirit? It's God giving it to us. And only then will we be able to walk according to God's commands. Will we be able to see and to enter into the kingdom of God where we have relationship with him? So guys, again, it's not become a better version of yourself. But rather, it's you need a completely new version of yourself that comes through the Spirit of God entering your life. Like that reality has to take place. And when the Spirit of God enters our heart, it changes everything about the fabric of who we are. We become a new creation by the Spirit of God. And so Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you are spiritually dead. Though you feel like you're alive, though you feel like you're a man of God, your heart is not actually pumping at all for who God is. And there might be some of you who's feeling that weight right now. As you hear this text, as you hear this story. And so Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So you can just picture Nicodemus probably leaning back in his chair. And he's just stunned. Like there's so many questions that are flooding to his mind. So much confusion, so many doubts that are all hitting him at once. And sometimes we have these moments where we're overwhelmed with our thoughts. And then we try to put that to words. And all he can say is how. How is my moral record not good enough? How do I be reborn in the spirit? How does that even happen? Nicodemus is confronted for the first time with something that he cannot understand. He's always operated out of this physical world as it talks about the flesh here. He's always operated out of, man, if I do a good job, I will get rewarded for that. Like there will be a benefit to me working really hard. And so he can't grasp, how am I born again in the spirit? What do I even need to do there? And so you can just feel this continued mixture of just curiosity and frustration that's hitting him in this moment. And I think that we can ask the exact same question. How can this be? The spiritual realm, the walking in the kingdom of God sounds like an amazing thing. I don't get it. I don't know how to enter into the kingdom of God. I don't know how to have the spirit enter my heart. Like I've gone to church so many times. And some of you might have gone to church so many times, but you're like, man, it just hasn't clicked for me. And we want to grasp 
the reality of the spiritual realm before we commit to following God. But let's look back at verse 6. It says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So if you're walking in the flesh, you will only be able to see in the physical sense. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what he's saying here is that the spirit of God needs to be in your heart before you understand the things of God. Like that needs to happen first before you begin walking and loving and knowing Jesus more with your life. But we don't want to believe that. Like some of you in this room might be like, no, I want to grasp it. I want to understand this Christianity thing, I want to understand the kingdom of God. I want to understand the spiritual realm before I actually commit. And so until I understand it, I'm not buying in. But I want you to hear that is impossible for you to do. So some of you maybe have seen uh, the videos online of people who have been colorblind their entire life. And someone buys them these magic glasses. I don't know where you find them. But you, they buy you these glasses where you throw them on and you can see the vibrant colors in all of their majesty. And so there's actually a pastor in the Salt Network that did this exact same thing and he filmed it. And he's just like, man, these pumpkins are so incredibly orange. And I know what that means now. Like the grass is so beautiful and green, like blue. That's blue. Like that's what that is. And so he's amazed by all these colors. But imagine... Someone bought these glasses for him and handed it to him and said, hey, put these on. You'll see what color really is. And he says, actually, I want to understand it before I put those on. I want to be able to know what green and what purple and what red is. I want to understand why they have red and green for Christmas and how those colors go together. Like, I want to understand everything about colors before I put those on. You know, like, dude, I don't. I don't know if you know this, but you're colorblind. Like you can't see them without these glasses. You have to put these on first before you can actually see the color that's in front of you. But that's exactly what we do with the spiritual realm. Though we are blind to the spirit, though we are blind to the things of God, we convince ourselves that we need to understand it before we even submit to Jesus and honor him with our life. Before we even come to to him and just say, Jesus, I need you to understand the kingdom of God. We do that exact same thing. And so the freeing reality I want you guys to realize. If you're sitting in here and you're like, man, I don't understand the spiritual realm. I don't know what it looks like to walk with God. I want you to be freed up to realize it's not something you're doing or not doing. It's not that you're not doing the right things or that you need to come to church a whole lot more often or that you need to do a whole lot more in order to understand the things of God. It's not that, it's that you're blind to the Spirit. And that only when the Spirit of God enters into your heart will you actually be able to understand who God is and what it looks like to walk with Him. And so we realize, man, we need the Spirit of God. How? So Jesus continues his answer to Nicodemus of his question of how can these things be in verse 13. So he is going to show us how do we, as people far from God, people with brokenness, people with shame, how do we actually walk with this holy God that we've heard about? 
Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from earth, from, descended from heaven, there it is, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, what's he talking about with the serpent and Moses? So there was a, a story that mind you, Nicodemus would know this story as soon as Jesus started it. He could recite this entire story to you. It's from Numbers, where it's Moses and the people of God in the wilderness. And guys, there's fiery snakes everywhere that are buying, biting people and killing them off. Like, that's unfortunate. So there's these snakes everywhere killing people off by biting them. And they're just like, okay, God, we can't do anything with these. Like, what do we need to do? Forgive us. So they go to Moses, and Moses goes to God, and God says, hey, Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent. And I want you to put that serpent on a pole, and I want you to lift up that serpent in the air so that everyone who has been bit by one of these snakes, all they have to do is look up at that serpent, and they will be healed. So why is he telling this somewhat trippy story from the Old Testament? Because Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Guys, Jesus is trying to direct him to an event that will take place here soon. Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to see that here soon, it's not actually going to be a serpent that's held up. It's not going to be a pretty statue. It's actually going to be the Son of God who's lifted up. And it's not going to be on a pole. It's not going to be on the shiny bronze statue. It's actually going to be on a rugged wooden cross where the Son of God, the Savior of the world, will be held to that cross with nails through his hands, nails through his feet, bearing upon himself the wrath of God the judgment of the sin of the world. So Jesus is saying, you want to have access to the Spirit. Fix your eyes on the Savior of the world on a cross. Be amazed that God chose to come to this earth on his own and actually end his life by experiencing the most excruciating death by hanging on a cross for you. That's it. He's saying, look to Jesus. That's all you have to do. Like, isn't that a freeing thing? It's not about what you need to tackle, but it's just you looking to the cross and seeing that he died in your place. That he went to the cross so that you didn't have to. It's the most freeing invitation you could ever imagine. But the reality is, for a lot of us in this room tonight, Though we hear that story so many times, or maybe this might be the first time, we don't actually want to believe that. Like, we still want to earn it on our own. Like, we might hear this story tonight, and then tomorrow you might fall into broken, you might fall into sin, and you mess up again with something that you've messed up before, and you're like, man, how can I make it right? Maybe if I read enough Bible, if I do enough prayer, then I can be good enough before God. Then I can have confidence to go before God again. 
Or maybe this summer when everything started to fall apart in the whole world and all of your individual lives, you were walking through difficulty maybe. And you're like, man, how do I get a grip on my life? How do I fix this? How do I put this together on my own? We want to fix the problem because we want to be the one responsible for the problem being fixed. Though it is a complete and utter gift that we just have to look up at the cross and see Jesus hanging there and we can be brought into his family, that we can be brought into the kingdom of God, our response is, I don't want the gift, I want to earn it. So imagine with me, one, well, a couple different times, thing that leads up to uh, the child being born is that you have baby showers. And people just give you a ton of baby things. And it's amazing. And, and so imagine at one of these baby showers, Paige gets a bunch of gifts and, and she opens them all and they're all in front of her. And everyone's just like so excited for her to be a mom. Everyone's so pumped to be giving her this gift. And after she opens them all, she's like, okay, why don't you guys hold on to these? I'm actually going to go try to work some overtime at the hospital. I'm going to try to get some more hours in. And when I get that money, I'll actually bring it back to you. And you can then have the payment for these gifts. People would be like, no. That's... I got it for you as a gift. I want you to have this. I'm excited for you to be a mom. I want you to have these gifts. That's why I gave it to you. It's meant to be free. That's the definition of a gift. And that is what Jesus is saying. Coming to know him is exactly, but we don't want that. There's so many times that we turn it away in our life. Rather than just looking to Jesus and seeing what he did, he's like, we basically say, how can I work really hard to be better so that God would approve of me? And Jesus is just saying, all you need to do is lift your eyes up to the cross. That's it. And why that's the case is because when you lift your eyes up and see Jesus hanging there, for your sins. You see him experiencing the penalty for the brokenness that you caused. You see the story of the cross. So let's read the next couple of verses. Arguably some of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so Nicodemus is, again, just confused as he's sitting across from Jesus. This man who is obviously far greater than him, this man who is, man, got it all together, this man who has so much more wisdom than he does, this man that has so much more love for people than he does, this man that's so much more humble than he is, a man that's so opposite to him. And what happens in a culture when there's someone that has an opposite perspective or someone who's just different than someone else? Shame. Shame is lofted. Shame is given to people who are different than us or who think different than us. But he's sitting across from someone who is the most different person you could ever sit across. And all he feels is an overwhelming sense of love. Because Jesus is just, he, he's saying here, I did not come into the world to condemn you. 
but actually to show you how much I love you and how much I want to save you. So he experiences this overwhelming sense of love because he, he's confused. He's like, why aren't all of my, my moral record and my reputation, why isn't that good enough for God? And at the same time, he's confused that that's okay. Like he's going back and forth between these thoughts and he sees that it's Jesus himself that he needs to put his trust in. And that is all. Guys, what is your perception of how Jesus sees you? Maybe this is your first time in the church. Maybe you've been coming time and time again. Like when you were walking in or even during worship, how do you feel like Jesus was looking down upon you? Maybe you're like, it's one where you feel shame for living a certain way. Maybe you, you have this idea like he's this angry parent. It's basically like, you better shape up or else. You better get your act together or else. Guys, what this text wants to show us is that J- though Jesus is perfect and completely unlike us in every way, in his glory and in his wonder, He came that you wouldn't feel an ounce of shame. So if you're feeling that tonight, that is not from Jesus. That's not what he wants for you. He wants you to feel overwhelmingly loved because of what he did on your behalf, not because of what you bring to the table. All we bring is our brokenness. He brought our salvation. And so he wants us to look to him and see what he did on our behalf. And he wants you to see his heart that he has for you to save your life. And guys, this is better. (laughs) Like, this is so far better than us trying to be better day in and day out. Because even if you were better today than you were yesterday, you got to do it again tomorrow. And the rest of your life, you're striving to become a better version of yourself, and that is exhausting. And Jesus, again, isn't offering for you to be a better version of you. He's granting you a new you. One where the Spirit of God enters into your heart and changes everything about who you are to where you can dwell with God for all of eternity, to where you can feel contentment and joy and satisfaction for the rest of eternity. He's welcoming you into that freely. And guys, I think, isn't it evident that we can't be better on our own by the fact that Jesus had to go to the cross? Like the fact that God had to send his own son to go and live the perfect life and die the most excruciating way that you could die. Isn't that evidence that, hey, I don't think we could have done it on our own. Like if there was a way, if there was another possibility for us to muster up the strength to be good enough, I don't think he would have done that, but he did. And so now we get to look to him and receive the gift of being brought into the family of God. And through him, we are made New, not better. It is significantly better, but new, not us trying to be a better version of ourselves. God enters into our heart and changes everything about us to where we now love the things that God loves. We live for the things that God lives for, and that has the opportunity to change our lives for the rest of eternity. That's what God is inviting you in tonight. If you haven't, 
been walking with Jesus, all you have to do is to look up to him on a cross and see what he did for you. See that he is the Savior. See that he not only ascended on a cross, but he rose again and ascended to the right hand of God to where he is now lording over the universe and he is the Lord of your life. You just have to embrace him for who he is. And he will bring you into his family for all of eternity. So guys, the call for tonight is let us draw our eyes up. Let us lift our eyes to see this incredible Savior on a cross for us. Let me pray. Father, we we thank you for this story because, God, I know in my own heart this story reveals so much of my own brokenness. God, this story just reveals how I don't have it together myself. How I've tried time and time again to just get my act together, and yet I don't need to, and I can't on my own. And so, God, I pray for the person in the room tonight who is wrestling with the difficulty of, man, how, how can I be good enough for God? How can I be good enough to be in this room And I just pray that they would realize that their brokenness is the brokenness that is in every single person in this room. And I would say, welcome to the family. We're all incredibly broken people that need Jesus to enter into our heart, to change who we are. And that is a free gift. And so I pray that even one person tonight, God, would turn to you and say, Jesus, I see you as my Savior. I see you as my Lord. Spirit, come into my life and change everything about me so that I start living for you and not living for myself. God, that's what we want to do every single week here is we want to proclaim you because you are the only one worthy to be proclaimed. Jesus, cause our hearts to worship you. Help us to rest in the reality of what you've done because you deserve the worship. It's in your name we pray. Amen.